Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. As many of our regular listeners know, we talk about the Game B movement on the show from time to time. For those interested in learning more about what the hell is this thing, Game B, a new short film has just been released as an introduction to some of the Game B ideas. If you haven't, you can check it out at GameBFilm.org. That's GameBFilm.org or search Google for an initiation to Game B. Our guest today is Daniel Mezik. He's a returning guest. He appeared back a ways when we talked about some of the, the books that he has written and some of his ideas. But today we're going to do something a little different. But before we get to that, let me tell you a little bit about Daniel. He's been coaching executives and teams since 2006. He's a scrum at scale trainer and expert on business agility. And as I said, he's the author of three books on organizational change. Welcome back, Daniel. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I always enjoy talking to you. We're going to do something unusual today. As regular listeners know, we talk a fair bit about books. And when we do, we always have the authors on to talk about their book. But today, branching off an email exchange uh, Daniel and I had, uh, we're going to talk about two books that we both have read that provide quite different perspectives on the nature of leadership and social coherence more broadly defined. And, but because Daniel and I aren't the authors, please don't blame them for any blather or bad ideas that may ensue. It's all our fault. If you find this discussion something you want to learn more about, I recommend you read the books if you'd like to learn more. And as always, the links will be provided on the episode page at jimrutcho.com. So book number one, and this was a book suggested by Daniel, and it's titled Rational Ritual. Culture, Coordination, and Common Knowledge by Michael Suk-Yong Che, a professor of political science at UCLA, who studies how people coordinate their actions when each person wants to participate only if enough others do. Book number two, which I suggested, is Hierarchy in the Forest, The Evolution of Egalitarian Behavior by Chris Bohm. Regular listeners to the show will know this is one of my favorite books and one I often recommend. Chris, who I just discovered this morning when I was pulling together my show notes, recently passed away at the age of 90. That's too bad. He was a really good person. I had dinner with him several times. A great guy. He was a professor of biological sciences and anthropology at the University of Southern California, and his research focused on the origin of human conscience, the development of altruistic behavior in human beings, and the evolution of political behavior in apes and humans. So... Daniel, let's get started. Why do you think the book Rational Ritual is important? The primary reason is that because it, is, it, it opened up a discussion about a mechanism that makes it possible to coordinate very, very large groups of people, potentially millions. That's an interesting mechanism if it's, if it's real. So when I found this book, 
I don't know exactly how I stumbled upon it, but it's one of those things. When I reached the book, I was like, well, yeah, this explains a lot of what I've often felt intuitively about ritual. And uh, he goes so much deeper on it. So, for example, he cites sources that have applied mathematical modeling to common knowledge and have built up an algebra of common knowledge. And, and on page 18, he mentions a researcher who has done this. So the book, for that reason, is extremely interesting to me. Right now, we're trying to figure out how to maintain civil discourse and coordinate people, align people. And, and the book provides tools for doing ex exactly that. Yeah, and it, it is, was interesting. I actually did enjoy reading it quite a bit. And what he starts off with is getting into kind of what is the essence of the problem. And he calls it the coordination problem, right? Which is how do you get people to do things, particularly, and this is, uh, seems to be his hobby horse, is when our natural instincts or self-interest or psychology would want us to do things only when other people would also commit to do things. Why do you think that is a particularly important class of cooperation? My, my gut reaction to this is that the, the, the human species is a mimicking species. From a very young age, we mimic uh, others to learn how to be human. And when you talk about doing what others are doing, we're actually valuing what others value. And Rene Girard, the philosopher, has mentioned and discussed this in detail, that, that mimicry, specifically mimicry in what's valuable, is what humans do. We, we don't know what's valuable till we find out what other people think is valuable. And, and this is exactly what happens in the coordination space. Yeah, I figured you would mention Girardian mimesis. Yeah, that's, of course, the classic on to what degree humans are inventors versus copiers. And obviously, we have to be both because if we weren't inventors, there would be nothing to copy, which I sometimes throw back at the Girardians that, hey, wait a minute, we still have to account for innovation. But it is true that a lot of what we do is based on copying. And he gives some examples of uh, coordination problems in the product space. Yeah, this was quite interesting. I'd never quite thought of it this way. I've thought about network effect products, but you know, he points out that even something like beer is in some sense a coordination problem, particularly to the degree that you're a social person and have people over and have some beers on the patio. Probably you select your beers, at least for when your friends are over and you're not just drinking the cheap shit, you know, hoping that your friends will like your beer choice. And so in that sense, even beer is a coordination problem product. Yeah. So the idea of, you know, what, what beer do my friends value, you know, and I'll, and I'll buy that and I'll make sure that, that we're, we're in sync. You know, what, what he says also about commercials versus call downs on the telephone in political campaigns, he says like, you know, a call down on a political campaign, you never know how many people got the same call that you got when you picked up the phone. But if there's a commercial, you know, that, you know, multitudes saw that. And that he makes that distinction with common knowledge so that we have to both, I have to know that you know about the beer. That's what makes it. Yeah. And that's his argument. Yeah. Yeah, and it goes through quite a bit of quantitative analysis showing that advertisers of coordination problem products are typically willing to spend more to reach large audiences because they believe there's a kind of a synergistic network effect. You know, the evidence was relatively strong, not utterly compelling, but pointed in that direction. And he also pointed out that the in the United States, at least, the one really big event for still being able to reach a mass audience is the Super Bowl. 
And so his thesis was that we should see on the Super Bowl mostly coordination problem products. That was a kind of an interesting idea. And so I looked up at what's, what's going to be on this year's Super Bowl. And it looked like it was a mix, actually. Some things that were coordination products like beer, cryptocurrency, snack foods, cars, and Facebook, while some other ones weren't. Things like avocados. You know, I don't think we, uh, people don't even know what's in our goddamn guacamole at a party. So, you know, what avocado I buy is not a public good in any sense. Travel sites. QuickBooks, Sam's Club, Squarespace, and car parts. So at least now it seems less dominated than coordination problem products are. But his book was written in 2013, which means it was probably based on research 2010. And the world has changed a lot since 2010. It's become much more fragmented. You know, and back to your political comment, that's absolutely relevant to you know the fractionation of audiences through micro-targeting, particularly in social media. But also on TV, you know, back in the so-called good old days, which, hey, kids, they weren't as good as old farts sometimes make them out to be. <laughs> uh, but there was a much more coherent sense of common knowledge. I doing some research this morning for our call, and I uh, looked back at what was probably the high watermark in American society of message coherence. And that was the uh, Beverly Hillbillies TV show, number one ranked for year after year and thought to be the greatest single audience for a non-special event in American history was a particular episode of Beverly Hillbillies in January 1964, where 66% of all households that had a TV were tuned in to the Beverly Hillbillies. It's also worth noting for kids today that in those days, most people only had one TV set, right? So it wasn't, you know, Mary in her bedroom and Bob in his bedroom and mom and dad in the living room. Everybody was in the living room watching the same TV show. And 65% of them were watching a, yet another puerile and idiotic episode of the Beverly Hillbillies, which gave them something to talk about the next day at work or at school or on the bus, etc. And that's really a different world than we live in today. So, you know, we get back to you know, again, the political example, you know, if a political ad had been run on the Beverly Hillbillies, not only would 65% of the households seen it, but to your point and the book's point is that those 65% of households would know the other 65% of the households That's right, Jim. had seen this. That's right. And, and also realize that the gathering around the TV, sort of the analog campfire, was itself ritual. And it's important for your listeners to know the link between common knowledge and ritual. The Rational Ritual book asserts that ritual generates common knowledge and common knowledge can be used to coordinate at scale. And that is the key thesis of the book, that ritual's at the core of that. Well, I mean, yeah, that is sort of the core, but he also talks a lot about common knowledge more generally, right? Which I thought was equally interesting. Oh, yeah. And again, back to this political example where it used to be advertising on the Beverly Hillbillies, billboards, bumper stickers. Today, an awful lot of political advertising is truly micro-targeted. You know, that was the first real practitioners with the Obama campaign in 2008. And then that was been perfected uh, subsequently in the Trump campaign was, were experts at it in 2016, and both sides were pretty good at it in uh, 2020. So, you know, each side had a thousand or more messages that they would deliver to you based on a great detailed, fine-tuned analysis of all the data the social media companies had on you, which is a quite different world. 
and maybe at least in part to explain the sense of shit falling apart, because there is much less common knowledge, especially in the political space. Yeah. So when we see that targeted ad, we might assume that everyone else in America also sees that targeted ad, or at least the people in my cohort. But we don't realize that my cohort might be a cohort of uh, 100 or 200, depending on the congressional district or, or what, what the election is. So maybe what's going on is we're all assuming everyone else knows what I know because I've received an ad. And that's patently false because we're all getting a thousand different versions of that. Right. So the common knowledge that we think is really happening and he discusses it in the book a little bit. The people attribute come, you know, they, they think they know more than they know about what others think. And I think that's exactly what's happening here due to this digital targeting. Yep. And he also makes a point as a direct quote from the book. Our explanation starts by saying that submitting to a social or political authority is a coordination problem. Each person is more willing to support an authority the more the others support it. And so that would strike me that, that that is so interesting. I have the same quotes written down, the exact same quotes written down in my notes. That's interesting. That one just popped out at me as kind of near the core to what his thesis was. And, uh, you know, no surprise then that in this world where the channels are becoming much, much less mass, you know, the idea that people understand each other to have a common view of politics is broken down. Right. So so my my calculus for figuring out who to follow is I'm going to look and see who Jim Rutt follows, because I value Jim Rutt's opinion. And if Jim Rutt is is following a certain voice or, 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 or giving attention to a certain kind of leader or a certain leader, maybe I should be paying attention because I noticed that Jim Rutt is someone that I have respect for. So this is what's going on when we're trying to make sense, our sense making apparatus, I think we default to, well, what are, what are the other people doing? And this, this is a blessing and a curse. It can bring on things like mass delusions, and it can also you know, set us up to, to go in the right direction if, it's, if this is managed properly. So it's a dual-edged sword, this idea that we look to others to find out what's valuable. It's in, in the leadership department as well. You know, Who's a valuable leader? I'm going to see who Jim Rutt thinks is a valuable leader, and I'm going to go listen to that person. Yeah, and uh, of course, our uh, social media platforms are both a problem and an opportunity in this space. You know, for instance, Twitter. You know, People complain about Twitter, and I complain about it a lot, too. But Twitter is what you make of it, unlike some of the other platforms. You know, If you follow idiots, you'll have idiocy in your feed. If you follow good sense makers, people that bring good ideas to the fore or, or good pointers to sources, then you'll have a relatively better experience on Twitter. However, you're also still subject to the random, or not random, but the algorithmic sampling that the platforms do. You do not see what all the people you follow on Twitter are saying. You only see the ones that Twitter wants you to see. Yeah, what what I was going to say is I have personally gone to your Twitter account, Jim, and I have looked through who you follow. When I've got a little time on my hands, I'll graze on what those people have to say. And I might follow a few of them. So, you know, it's kind of shorthand for me to go to the Jim, Jim Rutt Twitter account or the whoever Twitter account and go look and see, you know, who's Jim following? And should I be listening to them? Maybe I need to click through on this. Yep. And I think we all do that. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly do the same thing from time to time. Yeah. But by the way, if you want to check out my Twitter account, people, it's Jim underscore Rutt at Twitter. So <laughs> check it out. Yeah. So the other thing that we, you know, this new world that we're in changes. Clifford Gertz, 
the book talks about him a bit. You know, he made the point that culture is not about unobservable mental stuff, but more about socially established structures of meaning by which people communicate and are therefore available for analysis and understanding. And this gets this, again, the idea that common knowledge that we share, at least historically, has been the building block of culture. Yes. And, and culture, you can think of, is the, the group memory. It holds the, the group memory, whereas the you know, individuals have individual memory. James Shidgarajadagi wrote a book called Systems Thinking. He was an acolyte of uh, Russell Ackoff. And he referred to this uh, container as the shared image. And he was speaking, I think, directly to common knowledge or along the lines of uh, what Michael Fay was saying in his book, Rational Ritual. The shared image is how Garajadagi referenced the same thing that we're talking about here. Now, when we get down to smaller groups, you know, we've been talking a, little, a fair bit about the, uh, the political society level, mass mega societies. He also has some interesting things to say about much smaller scale rituals and, and ways of developing common knowledge, such as the habit of sitting in a circle, for instance. Facing each other or not. Facing each other. Yeah. Or not. And he relates it back to the old forager level campfire, which seems reasonable, right? Where everybody orients to the campfire, but they can also see each other. Yeah. And that's generating common knowledge in real time as, as I notice that you notice that I'm noticing that we're all here and, and how you're responding and we're, we're all responding to each other. And of course, that's the essence of, you know, on the previous podcast episode, we discussed open space. Uh, we didn't discuss it as much as ritual, but I mean, that's what it is. And it's, it's a circular event. When you're face to face, it's, it's chairs in a circle. And that's, that's extremely powerful. That thing scales too. I mean, you can have thousands of people in a circle. Now, of course, the other issue about common knowledge is that if you want to be a totalitarian, uh, it becomes your job to manage what is the common knowledge. Uh, the definitive book on that is 1984, where they literally invent a new language so bad ideas can't even be expressed. We think about you know, totalitarian regimes today like China. They go to great lengths to squelch the emergence of common knowledge that's outside of the narrative that they want followed. I've been doing some fairly low-level digging into how China actually works, and it's quite interesting. You know, the idea that it's completely repressive is actually not quite right. China actually tolerates demonstrations, even quasi-violent ones, as long as they're about local problems like corrupt officials or people unhappy about replacing a farm with a polluting factory or something. But the instant you start challenging the, the grand narrative about the CCP, the cops show up, start breaking heads and throwing everybody in jail. So they're actually remarkably subtle at tolerating quite, quite more dissonance than you might think, and yet at the same time making sure that the common narrative is preserved. The macro narrative, yeah. The one that they steward and husband and develop and prune, right? They're taking care of it, and they're keeping what they consider to be noise out of the signal. Yep. And then another issue I'd suggest around common knowledge is sometime probably around 1920, using some of the work from Freud. In fact, famously, his nephew Bernays invented the whole modern advertising industry and PR and all that, is the machinery of late stage modernism has developed the ability to manufacture needs. Michael referenced that in the, his book and told the story about Listerine, for instance, right? And as I look at this, I find this ability to manufacture needs considerably more a bug than a feature. 
because it you know it puts us on a rat race where despite right. the fact that by any objective standard in western civilization we live like kings you know a welfare recipient lives better than louis the 14th did in certain ways right and yet because of this ability to i consider a runaway bug to constantly manufacture new needs that aren't really very needful the ability to actually relax and enjoy our abundance is being destroyed by our own society. Yeah. So in the book, you know, he talks about this Listerine ad making a common knowledge that that almost everyone has bad breath, manufacturing the obligation to have good breath. You know, and Louis, the king you mentioned, he probably had bad breath because he never watched the Listerine commercial. You know, he had no clue because no one had the balls to tell him because, you know, he was the king. Right. So this is the world we live in today. This is what's going on. And it also speaks to mimimis as well, right? So common knowledge and mimimis are really linked together. So the work of Michael Jean, his book, Rational Ritual, and again, the Girard hypothesis about mimimis, I, I really think those, those two things uh, tie together in a big way, and they, one confirms the other. Hey, let's, let's talk a little bit about ritual, and then let's move on to Bohm's book, and then we'll talk about what, what does it all mean? So in America, at least, our rituals are pretty weak. If you think about them, I was pondering that. What do I do that's ritualistic? Not much, right? Every couple of years, I end up, well, at least pre COVID, ended up going to a wedding, you know, and a fair number of them are these $100,000 weddings. Holy fuck, right? When my wife and I got married, we spent $550. I can tell you exactly, right? What we spent on our wedding. We had 110 guests at our party and the whole deal. But nowadays, people like to spend 100000 bucks on a wedding and guess what? They're actually pretty weak sauce. You know, they're stereotypical. They're not very moving. They're more about glitz and status promotion, etc. Uh, what do you see as some examples of, of ritual in our society that maybe are more healthy than that? Yeah. So, yeah. So just, well, let me talk broadly about just modern man in general. Modern man in general is is lacking in in rituals or the rituals are not obvious like the super bowl is a kind of ritual that america has the whole world has now every year ritual i think is how we make sense of things and you know modern rituals are are weak like you mentioned like the hundred thousand dollar wedding that follows the same script that the 550 dollar wedding followed right rituals today you mean group rituals or individual? Like how would, which, which type do you, would you like me to speak to? Yeah, group, group rituals, you know, ones that produce common knowledge or produce coherence. Yeah, I think today a lot of this has been skewed by, by social media. So social media has created new kinds of rituals at the group level. So, for example, in conversations, we're notified immediately when there's something that happens on a thread that we commented on. There's a sort of ritual basis to that interaction, right? You, you get a, a notification, you jump in after being notified, and you're adding. Uh, there's a little bit of limbic hijacking there, but th that communication is, is ritual in nature. In fact, it's, it, it's so deep now that gentlemen like you, Jim, take sabbaticals from social media because, you, you know, you want to get away from the scripted nature of what's going on there. Inside organizations, I would say all hands meetings in the society itself. I would say sporting events and the, the ritual of before, after and during sporting events is also very common. Baseball, football in America, basketball, they're very scripted, especially the championship events. 
And then in general, you know, there's not a lot of ritual at the individual level, which is leading to a meaning crisis, right? I mean, people don't know in America when they're men, when they're women. I mean, speaking now to passage rite rituals, you know, the, the Jewish culture has the bas mitzvah and bar mitzvah. What do we have? If you're not Jewish, how, what's the coming of age ritual? Yep, exactly. When your dad hands you a condom and the keys to the car, basically, right? <laughs> yeah, and he wants to have the talk that he should have had with you, you know, six years earlier. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and even at the micro level, and one of the things Michael Che talks about is dance, right? And even our dance today is now an individual or very small group thing. You know, you go to a club and you don't see people doing coordinated dancing like uh, many traditional societies. You see everybody out there being their freelance, goofy-ass person or maybe forming up in little groups of two or three. But the idea of even coordinated dance seems to have gone away. Yes. And, and it's interesting how he brings up how movement builds common knowledge when he talks about coordinated dancing and how the dancers all must share some common knowledge to coordinate at all. And then coordinating itself reinforces their alignment and the coordination. So yeah, right now in the in the world today, we're we're severely lacking in ritual, and I think that's the reason why we're we're lacking in common knowledge. And common knowledge coordinates and aligns huge groups of people. And what we have is a total lack of alignment, lack of coordination, uh, sort of a breaking down into tribalism because we don't share anything in common in the culture space or in that shared image, like you're saying. I think it. It comes down to the building blocks of, of common knowledge, our ritual, and we're, it's, it's lacking in the West. As my uh, good friend and close collaborator, Jordan Hall, would say, things that we have left are weak sauce, right? They're, you know, $100,000 weddings or Super Bowl parties. I mean, <laughs> let's come on, guys. We can do a hell of a lot better than this. And humans have done in the past a hell of a lot better. Yeah. While we're on the subject of ritual, I want to bring up that most rituals are some kind of meaning. And meetings in general, I have a hypothesis that they are essentially games. And if, they're, if the goals, the rules, and the progress tracking are well-formed, then the game's enjoyable to play. So when you look at ritual and you look at the roles in ritual, you look at the, the rule set or constraints, the boundaries in, in ritual, and you look at the way progress is depicted in a well-formed ritual, you can see that there's game elements in ritual. So my current belief is that ritual is game at scale. This is what's really going on. And there's a book called uh, Homo Ludens, and it's by a fellow called Johan Huizinga. And he discusses this game-playing animal or the, the playful animal, Homo Ludens, right? So this is what this, I think this is why ritual rings and, and clicks with us is that we're game-playing creatures, we're playful creatures. We want to understand the goals. We want to understand the rules. We want to, we want to experience progress. And ritual delivers. And there can be a lot of meaning conveyed through that, through that game structure. And I believe this is what ritual actually is. So there's a huge opportunity. Like, you know, you're, you're a game B developer, acolyte, uh, and enthusiast. I, I think ritual is a key to moving into that that space that the game be the game be folks want to move into. So when I say game, that might be a loaded term for your for your audience, for to the listeners, but not every game is competitive. Yep. Many games are cooperative in nature. Many, and, and there's many, many different kinds of games. So when we look at ritual, 
we're going in and we know exactly how it goes. It's predictable. It's reliable. It's a trustworthy kind of a game that's easy to play. Yeah, that's a, an interesting insight. We'll revisit that and other things from Michael Che's book after we talk a little bit about Chris Poem's book, Hierarchy in the Forest. And you know, this is really quite an interesting and rich book. And as I mentioned early on, one I, I, I mentioned a lot. It's had a lot of effect on me. And I think his main, th- his original thesis is that egalitarianism needs an explanation. And he, you know, he goes through the historical record and shows that most forager peoples who organized in groups of 150 or less, the famous Dunbar number, and even many early agricultural people had, by our current models, remarkably egalitarian societies. They did not have chiefs. That was a little later when tribes formed and there were chiefs or big men, head men, etc. And so he goes to a tremendous amount of work deconstructing the evolutionary history of humans and the sociology of chimps and bonobos and gorillas and all this stuff. And he comes up with, at least I would argue as the thesis, that if you look at our genetic heritage, we almost certainly have a large propensity towards dominance and submission and thereby the emergence of hierarchy, right? You look at chimps in particular. I mean, chimps are like a bad satire of a uh, totalitarian dictatorship. I'm actually kind of more like the mob, right? Because people are always taking each other out on the hierarchy, but everybody knows their place in the stack and they get beaten if they violate the norms, unless they can beat the other guy and then they take his place. It's really quite horrible caricature of the worst possible human behavior. Uh, and bonobos, while you know, everybody says they're the hippie apes, they're not all that much better. In fact, uh, and some objective scales that Bohm quotes. He says, yeah, bonobos, not so hideous as chimps, but actually a lot more hierarchical than humans. And since we shared a common ancestor with both chimps and bonobos, Bohm argues that we should have a level of dominance and submission that's probably somewhere between bonobos and chimps. He makes an argument probably closer to chimps for various reasons, may or may not be true. Doesn't really matter. In any case, somewhere in that space is a lot more hierarchical than our ancestors. And keep in mind, the forager and small-scale agriculturalists represents more than 90% of human history. So where does this come from? And one of the things I found very refreshing about Boehm is that he rejects the blank slateism of so much of his social science peers. And he says, let's take as a given that human nature left to its own devices would produce hierarchy, dominance, and submission, and would be fairly ugly, probably. Uh, How did the foragers get out of that trap? And his argument is they developed, evolved into, actually, a a social operating system that was rigorously evolved and tuned to avoid the emergence of big men and people who were bosses. And I thought that was really, really interesting and an important counterpoint to common knowledge, which while very powerful for organizing people at every scale, also has the tendency to collapse into hierarchy and dominance and submission. Yeah. So when we look at Bohm and what he wrote about, you know, the Dunbar number, you mentioned that, I think it's important to to note that even Bohm himself says that hunters, foragers, gatherers, you know, they're around the Dunbar number. And then, you know, tribesmen, those are larger structures, right? So That's the first thing is that all this egalitarian stuff is mostly clustered around Dunbar and lower numbers. 
right? That's the first thing about it. And then he struggles and strains to offer a, a clear hypothesis about, you know, why egalitarianism? Because as he points out in the book, it flies in the face of evolutionary theory, which is that, you know, I'm going to support my kin, I'm going to support my DNA at the expense of the other. So my, you know, my DNA can make it into the next generation, whether it's in my body or, or one of my kinsmen, right? So, you know, he, he says, why would we knowingly help, assist, and, you know, generally help, help another group to thrive who has none of our DNA, another family strain, another, another line? Why would I help another one? And uh, you and I, we talked over email about this, and I think it's actually pretty straightforward. You want me to offer my hypothesis? Absolutely. I think it goes like this. I think looking out for the group ultimately is looking out for yourself. Because in hunter-gatherer societies, if you were left alone, basically you got to die. And as he pointed out with the um, primate societies and human beings, the first thing another band is going to do is kill you if they find you wandering around their territory. And you don't have anyone else backing you up, uh, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to die of natural causes or you're going to be murdered by the incumbent in that space. So looking after yourself is actually looking after the group. If the group doesn't survive, I don't survive. And I think that explains a lot. Yeah, that's the traditional group selection argument, right? And yeah. Biologists don't like it for some reason, but it's always struck me as got to be at least in part true, right? Because it is true that humans are an inherently social animal. We don't really make sense as independents, which is one of the things that's so peculiar about Western civilization, again, is this ever stronger ratchet towards more and more atomization of the individual, you know, down to the, you know, the very small nuclear family. And even that these days, how many people are still having common dinner hours, right? And that is not how, we're, how we were evolved or what we selected for, which was to be a much more coherent and convivial and social species at the, at the level of 50 people, as your camp, as Dunbar would call it, and then 150 people approximately as, you know, your broader community of people that you actually know. And again, those are some things that we have deviated far away from in modern society. Yeah. Now that's keeping that together as a matter of discipline and intention as an individual and a family. You know, I mean, in the America, people move away and they, they're not around. Uh, personally, around here, my, my children live nearby and the previous generation also lives here. And we go out of our way to stick together and to do basically group rituals like shared meals and various events together. And, and that's because we all know that that ministers to the well-being of every person in the group to, to have membership. Membership and belonging is a big deal. So getting back to this, this thing about group selection, I want to offer one more piece to it and see how it lands with you. I think that egalitarianism at its core has something to do with increasing group decision quality. So, for example, when a hunter-gatherer group uh, makes a decision to migrate somewhere else or go to war, I think the decision quality is increased through collective intelligence. It could be decreased through dictatorship, tyranny, uh, one-man rule, one-person rule. So I have a suspicion that this egalitarianism is in service to improved decision-making at the group level. 
Yep, I think that makes a lot of sense, particularly for the big questions like you, you know, the examples you gave. Should we go to war with the people in the next valley? Should we move because things aren't looking so good here? Those are huge decisions. And, you know, as we, I think we know that uh, forager people tend to make those by consensus after quite elaborate processes and ceremonies, and it could take days to reach a decision on those big questions. I would also suggest that even at the smaller scale decisions, the egalitarian model may well be better. The way I I have synthesized this down to be useful in business is to look at what the foragers do, which is role-based leadership. So rather than having the head man boss, you know, when we're talking about hunting, oh, we go with the 22-year-old who has shown by example to be the best hunter, to know the most about how animals move, how to be able to read the signs, etc. We listen to what he says because he's the best hunter. When we're going out to gather tubers, then we listen to the older woman who has 40 years of proven track record of being the greatest tuber hunter of them all. And, you know, she is our leader when we're hunting for tubers. And when we go to war, who do we have as our war leader? We have that slightly psycho dude who uh, everybody's sort of afraid of and who we have been trying to manage all these years. But let me tell you, he's fucking useful when we go to war, right? That's, in fact, actually my side hypothesis is why have sociopaths continue to exist at about a 1% frequency rate in the human population? And the answer is you need your sociopaths when you go to war. And so unlike in, let's say, many businesses where in distinction between role-based leadership, we have position-based leadership. Through some process, somebody has been made the boss and put in this box and is in charge of a whole bunch of processes and work And hey, those of us who've worked in corporations know often the boss is a fucking idiot, right? Might have some skills in something, but it might just be kissing ass and brown nosing, but is often not the person who is actually, you know, best situated to make the best decisions about particular areas of expertise in their domain. And so the decisions made by these, especially bureaucratic type companies, is grossly suboptimized because of position based leadership rather than role-based leadership. I believe that's another area where the forager, more egalitarian style of leadership actually does result in better decisions on average. Yeah, so let's talk about this for a minute. The book is called Hierarchy in the Forest, Jim, right? Hierarchy of what? You know, like taxonomy is a hierarchy of things. And there's other hierarchies in nature. So not all hierarchies are have the same content. What kind of hierarchy are they talking about? It's an authority hierarchy. Yes. And, and what is specifically being authorized? Decisions that affect the group. That's the authority hierarchy they're talking about. So how interesting is it when you call it role-based leadership? In the book, they talk about a skilled hunter finding the, the game and the forager group having a, a successful hunt. And then they have this ritual. One of the hunters will come up to the one who found all the game and say, hey, what did you, you, know, what did you get today? And they took down like some large game together because of this one guy. And the one guy says, well, you know, I caught a couple. I got a couple small ones. You know, I got a rabbit. You know, I got a squirrel. And and it's a joke. Everyone knows that this this is the one who led us to the game. But there's this affectation ritual where honor is brought to the person. Everyone knows that the person's worthy of the honor. And, And the ritual is that the person's supposed to play that down. And not not puff it up, right? It's it's a social ritual about success in a particular role. 
Isn't that interesting? Yeah, very interesting. And, you know, another one he quotes is the, the Kung people, the San people of southeastern Africa, uh, one of the most uh, long-lasting forager people, still forager people today, some of them. A game they play, apparently, according to Chris Bohm, is that the person who gets credit for the kill is the person whose arrow first struck the animal. And they have this elaborate ceremony of lending their arrows to each other, right? So it's the actual owner of the arrow, not the person that shot the animal who gets the credit. And because of there's such a high uh, level of sharing of arrows that essentially credit for the animal is more or less random, even though, as it turns out, based on anthropological analysis, the skill of hunters varies in a much more predictable fashion. Better hunters kill a lot more animals than lesser hunters. But because of this randomization of borrowed arrows, credit is distributed more or less randomly, which you know, I would argue is very clever mechanism for reducing the tendency of the better hunter to puff themselves up and take more authority than they really do. Right. And everybody knows. So when you talk about the role-based leadership, you know, versus positional, this is the informal authorization of your kinsmen, your colleagues and your peers. They're basically saying to each other, hey, you know, when we go hunting, Jim seems to know like where the game is. So why don't we defer to Jim long enough to find that out? Right. And then there's this whole series of social rituals, like you mentioned, about the Kong and the sharing of their arrows. It's an airbrushing away of what everybody knows. Right. There's a social value system there. One of the things I noticed in the book for the listeners, that the values in the in these hunter forager groups were sharing, self-control, humility, altruism, cooperation and community. And what they don't value, as you can see through their, their customs and their rituals and their, their uh, rules, anger, self-aggrandizement, conflict, arrogance, lying, theft, personal ambition, and aloofness, right? So all those things are, are devalued in these societies. Sharing, self-control, humility are valued. And what I also found interesting about the book were the minimum qualifications for leadership, Jim. There were two. And the, the one was generosity. So if you're a good hunter or you're good at something, like getting those tubers, you know, sharing. Generosity, sharing what you've got. And then the second thing, which I found very interesting, was even temper, slow to anger, measured in control of themselves emotionally. I found that to be extremely interesting. And I've been reflecting on it in modern, in the modern world, you know, how many leaders today are uh, gen, uh, demonstrate generosity, demonstrate even temper, right? So we, we've lost some of that. Yeah, in fact, when you were reading that list of the things that the hunter-gatherers did not want in a leader or a, a person even, I said, hmm, all the psychopathic crap. I mean, that's our society, right? I mean, that's life in uh, corporate America. I mean, it's like the anti-pattern from the foragers. And again, then in our Game B context, it's one of the reasons why we focus so much on building society from the bottom up in groups of 150 or thereabouts. Because in what we talk about this, when we get into the more general applications, which is probably where, where we should go next, is that 
we've demonstrated, humanity has demonstrated through at least 90% of its history that we can manage ourselves in groups of up to 150 about the basic ways of living and basic ways of life and how to raise children in a safe and sane fashion, how to keep homicidal male jealousy under control and all those classic issues, which uh, are always on the edge of preying on group coherence. And we can do it in an egalitarian fashion if we you know, one, use role-based leadership, and two, aggressively subvert attempts for people to grab general authority. And, you know, to your, to the point that you made and, you know, the Kong make, there's lots of ways to needle and belittle and make fun of anyone who puffs themselves up. And hell, all those of us know in corporate America, you can't do that with the position-based boss, right? You, and maybe in the very best companies, you can a little bit. But in most companies, that is not the way that you work with your boss is making fun of them and belittling them, right? Not if you want to have a good career. While in, in the forager world, that is part of the social operating system, you know, as Bohm lays out. You know, the first, inevitably, he talks about this lots of times, People puff themselves up, want to be the big man, right? And the first thing you do is you laugh at them, right? And say, who the hell are you to tell me? Yeah. And then the second thing is you ignore them. And then the next thing you do is you ostracize them. Nobody else talks to them either. Then if they continue to try to puff things up, then you exile them. And as we talked about before, to be exiled from the group, unless you're really lucky, basically is death, right? Maybe you, get, you can come back and sometimes, and they'll take them back usually, and maybe they're chastened. But if they, uh, they're exiled, they come back and they're not chastened, what do they do? They kill them, right? And he talks about that quite a bit. And interestingly in the book, there's often retribution tit-for-tat killings. So to solve this problem, they have someone from his bloodline do the actual assassination so that there's no retribution. It came from the family itself. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I thought that was an extraordinarily interesting point. And it kind of went with it in terms of a technology. It's actually a physical technology, but it turns out to be a social technology. He also makes a point, this is actually one of the things he's most famous for, even though I think it's a relatively minor part of his work, is that he makes the point that in the chimpanzee world, two betas cannot kill an alpha. But Two beta humans with spears can kill an alpha human real easy. And that hunting weapons provided a technology that may have been one of the things that allowed this more egalitarian style to trump our biological tendencies towards dominance, submission, and hierarchy. And one of the great ironies, it may have been, uh, you know, hunting weapons repurposed for killing humans that allowed us to escape the trap of hierarchy. Yeah, and Jim, if I can add to this, in the book, Bohm also mentions that this could provide a plausible explanation for our diminished body hair because primates like chimpanzees and gorillas have a hair that will make them stand up straight and make them look bigger in displays of threat. And then when we got weapons, uh, hey, we didn't need that anymore because we had reach, we had lethality. It was all there. Yeah, and we had skill. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting and, and little appreciated point. And as I said, Boehm is actually quite famous for having that insight. And it is an interesting one, but I don't think it's nearly as important as his idea of an evolved operating system that allows people at Dunbar number and below to operate non-hierarchically in a much more fluid fashion than our more hierarchical cousins, the bonobos and the chimps, 
And interestingly enough, our modern selves where, you know, after the invention of even the chiefdom, but certainly after the invention of the early states in Mesopotamia, we've been caught into this fucked up arms race of more and more hierarchy. One thing I want to call out about what you said is, is it's, it's not just any hierarchy. It's a hierarchy about authorized decision rights. When we talk about hierarchy, we, use, we say hierarchy is shorthand for a hierarchy of who has what authorized decision rights. And the higher up in the hierarchy you are, the more you are authorized to make decisions that affect the entire group. So, for example, when we elect someone in the United States, we are literally electing them to make decisions that affect the entire group. So this has huge implications. When you talk about banishment, I think this is the reason why people defer to authority maybe too readily in this world. And it's a cause of many sorrows. People just normally accept whoever shows up as an authority figure without questioning, like, like with a lack of sovereignty, almost automatically, almost instinctually, almost at a, at a deep code level. And I think it has to do with survival. People are very much concerned with surviving and they feel like deferring to authority is going to help them in their fitness. So we've, I think, given our listeners a very light gloss on these two books, and we have not done justice to these two books. No, not at all. These two books are a lot, a lot richer than we have gotten into here. We just hit some of the high points. And again, if you're interested in these topics, go read the books. They're both well-written, easy to understand. You don't have to have any special background to make sense of them. So uh, go read them. So now let's move on from these you know, two different, though overlapping, perspectives. And what do we think this means for how we should be thinking about the world we live in today? The world is seeking leadership all the time, and especially during a crisis in sense-making and meaning like we have now. More than ever, people are almost too willing to settle for any kind of leadership. You know, the Game B folks have a, have a vocabulary, have a, a glossary, have terms of art. One of them is sovereignty, right? So sovereignty, you know, one definition of sovereignty is the ability to stand aside and to be careful about who and what you're authorizing, right? Not, not being so quick to follow, right? So we talk a lot about leadership and authority, but there's also followship. And sovereignty speaks to that. Absolutely. And the foragers, the foragers too. Let me just jump in here for a second. I'll let you get back on your story. That's clearly the idea of personal sovereignty was core to how the foragers saw themselves and the hierarchies that they were trying to loosen and make much more specific and not general. The reason they did not like the big man was the big man would limit their personal sovereignty. And they were, you know, everything Boehm talks about is that there seemed to be an instinctual sense. And, you know, other people, I just finished reading Graeber's new book, Graeber, and who was the other guy, his co-author, go into how the North American forest Indians lived. And, you know, famously, they didn't want nobody to tell them what to do, God damn it. And that is sovereignty at some level, right? Of course, you have to be practical and know that we also have to cooperate. But the strong sense of you ain't the boss of me is something that's been beaten out of people here in our modern world. That's correct. And I think it's in the deep code of the human species. Part of our makeup, part of our nature is to defer to authority in service to survival. Yeah, that's the chimp part, right? Yeah, yeah. This is very much what's going on, often below the level of consciousness, Jim. 
So people are routinely authorizing leaders who they haven't really thought fully about who are now now in charge of decisions that affect them and the entire group. So the sovereignty thing in game B, from my point of view, is a huge issue. There's not nearly enough emphasis on authority and authorization. So, for example, in universities across the country, there's uh, schools of leadership studies. But you won't be finding any schools on authority studies. And that's actually the deeper thing, because all leaders are authorized in some way to be so, or they wouldn't be leaders, right? Like you said, positional-based or role-based, formal or informal. Authority is at the bottom of everything. You know, even, even your podcast, the people that you choose to have on the podcast, you are authorizing their voices as potential leaders in the world today. You know, we've discussed some, some candidate guests, and without getting into the names, uh, you and I have discussed how, well, I don't, I don't know if I want to give that person a voice, you know, because I've got a certain agenda of my own. And I, I don't want to I don't know if I want to authorize that voice is how I picked up on on that conversation. Right. And that's very much what you're doing. No, actually, I will, do, I will, I will say my algorithm is actually slightly different than that, though it, it may be constructively a, a similar result. And I, I remember some of those conversations. And it's one of the things I've chosen for the style of this podcast is to, as, as you know, I push back a fair bit with all the guests, but sure. I've never had a guest on that I, that I, with one exception, that I radically disagree with on most things, right? I, I figure there's enough negativity in the world. I want to bring on people who, in some sense, I think are saying things that are true or that are useful or that are beautiful, and I do like to push back where I disagree, but I, it, it's just not the game I've chosen to play right. to engage with people who I'm not more or less on a similar page with. So true, useful, and beautiful is what you're willing to authorize as a curator of the Jim Rutt Show. You know, so yeah. or what I think is true, useful, and beautiful, what I personally believe to be. Right. I make no claim that I am always right or that my views are the objective definitions of truth, beauty, and utility. But, you know, that's my, I, I will take that actually from you. This is good. It's a good conversation that my authority in the space of the Jim Rutt show, the way I choose to model this authority is to look for and to approve people that I think personally and with, with recourse to nobody else, if I bring them on my show, will add to the world's stock of beauty, utility, or truth. Yeah, so so there you go. So this this whole thing, the other thing I want to say about this, both Bohm and Michael Che speak about it in their books. And for the record, I found 17 references to the word authority in the Bohm book, and I found six references to the term social distancing as part of the sanctions that they do when they don't they don't value what's going on. They they socially distance. But getting back to the authority thing. Che and Balm both, I think, are discussing exactly this because authority, the authority information is the glue that holds a social system together. So, for example, if you were still a CEO at Network Solutions, you bring me into Network Solutions and you introduce me around, you give me the person's name. And the very next thing you do is you tell me what their positional situation is. Where are they in the authority hierarchy? Why? Why is that information shared with me? So I can make sense of where I am because that's the glue that's holding everything together. It's that authority information. So this is playing out on social media in a huge way. It's playing out in your podcast. 
it plays out obviously in, in the bomb the bomb stuff because it's all about this and the common knowledge piece is really about what narratives and what information what knowledge we're authorizing as you brought up when you discussed china being okay with certain kinds of challenges and totally not okay with others right the macro narrative is not going to be trifled with you know they they shepherd that and steward that so this authority thing's a big deal the information is what holds society together and you know us elections or elections in any country are about who gets to decide and we're seeing that even in egalitarian societies in bohm's book who gets to decide where we hunt who gets to decide if we go to war who gets to decide where we go looking for certain kinds of food right we're electing the best people we can in each role to go do that we're authorizing them yeah we have to right if we're going to cooperate and again we talk about sovereignty but on the flip side of sovereignty the true human superpower which has allowed us to basically live in every biome and just do remarkable things is cooperation and at least so far at the micro level, there there needs to be some authority. I mean, needs to be a decision making to achieve coordinated efforts amongst people. Right. But I guess my take in the game B perspective is that this is ossified into rigid hierarchies. And again, go back go back to network solutions. I talk uh, walk you around and say, oh, this is the this is the manager you work for who reports to this director, reports to that vice president, who reports to me. Right. Right. And you know that's one. You know, that's the formal position based box. But we also both know in real companies, an awful lot of what really happens happens in the informal leadership aspects of it. Let's talk about that. Let's discuss that for a minute. Here's one of the characteristics of the informal authority system. It can change and adapt about a thousand times faster than the formal system can. That's the first thing about it is that. You know, we, you and I might be um, have, hold someone in high esteem, and then they do something that's completely foolish, and and exponentially their standing suffers instantly and exponentially. The formal system can't do that because there's procedure, there's protocol, there's compliance, there's all of HR and all this other stuff. You can't get rid of a bad formally authorized leader as quick as you can get rid of an informally authorized one. Like we see it in the bone book, through shunning. It's like, no, we don't authorize that anymore. Yeah, and we reauthorize it on a, you know, every day, essentially, right? You know, Joe, who used to be the best hunter, he ain't the best hunter anymore. And so maybe Joe gets to have two or three days worth of inertia, but he doesn't get two or three years like somebody in a box might in uh, with positional authority. And so I think that's, again, another driver why in this, you know, this reimagined human operating system that we're trying to find our way through with Game B, we're wondering if we can build even large scale, long range cooperation without rigid, unbending positional authority. You know, you probably need named authority, but is, are there ways to make it more fluid and, and uh, to your point, much more adaptable to the real factors of the facts on the ground? That's that is a very interesting question. So I would submit that Game B architecture is authorization architecture first and foremost. Because if there's one thing that we don't like, it's the Game A authority structure. Yeah, and I was actually thinking about this a little example today. We're finding some interest in people contributing money to the Game B movement to do more of like this movie that I talked about early on. Do more Game B arts. And there's a couple of architectures. One, we could put it all into a common pool and have 
a committee appointed to allocate it out to projects, et cetera. And my, as I thought, we thought this through, I go, yuck. I mean, that's pure game A. We've made some small group of people the curators of uh, projects. And I said, yeah, the game B way is let's provide a platform where people can propose projects and people can directly support the projects they want to support. So that leadership in the sense of people proposing a project is put out there, but people have to come to them. Right opt in rather than, you know, we delegate to some group of curators to figure this out for us. And I said, huh, you know, that's quite interesting, right? This is a a completely different way of thinking about how a culture authorizes, because someone does have to actually gather funds to create a work of art and does so without any, you know, intermediary bureaucracy. And it's completely fluid. Right. Yeah. And it's based on passion and responsibility. So in the open space world, Harrison Owen, who you know created open space, he's a storyteller. He's up in his 80s now. He has he has a lot of these sayings. One of them is without passion, nobody cares. And without responsibility, nothing gets done. And then he goes on to say that passion without responsibility will not win the game. And responsibility alone is mere obligation. You really need both. So when the passionate and the responsible show up, that film's going to get made because they care and they're committed, right? They're not just going to say, hey, that's a, the film's a great idea. Why don't you do it? That's a passion without responsibility. You need both, right? So this opt-in thing is based on invitation and responding to invitation, right? So that's actually another big thing, I think, that we can get out of the, the, the work of Balm is that basically positional titles and rank status and the, the, the authority that comes from that is actually not adaptive. It's not as adaptive as what you call role-based or the informal authorization. Yeah, and, yeah, and of course, role-based authority or you know the example of the self-organizing funding of movies is not stupid and arbitrary. You know, we, we look at each potential candidate and we assess their capabilities. So someone you know, lightly puts themselves out as the hunter leader. We say, oh, wait a minute. You know, Daniel hasn't ever hit anything with an arrow in his fucking life. Why should we listen to him, right? (laughs) And and the same with the movie, right? Someone proposes some grandiose $100 million space opera. And we say, "Mm, well, this person has never actually successfully delivered an eight-minute short. Probably not the person that we want to, you know, lead the charge on a $100 million space opera. So, you know, again, we humans are not stupid. They're pragmatic and they're able to, at some level, evaluate the appropriateness of a person to a role. And I think that's something that's very hopeful, actually, for the ability to get away from position-based leadership and move more pervasively to role-based leadership, because we're not going to give up, you know, vetting. In fact, we may actually vet our leaders more, much more, if we personally have to to grant them, give them a grant of resources or our time or authority for some purpose, rather than you know, grudgingly accept their authority that was pushed down on us from above because somebody was put in the box. Exactly. Yeah. And and a lot of times you can get totally out of alignment. You can have the wrong person in a leadership role or a positional leadership role. And it can be horrible for the for the for the group for a long time until that person's removed. Whereas in the informal system, things things move at the speed of light. People are promoted and demoted almost instantly based on how the group is assessing 
their performance, their behavior, and, and so on. The other thing about the Bone Book is he talked a lot about what he would call relative plausibility in some of his theories, Jim. So he would discuss, he'd, he'd make a hypothesis or he'd, he'd offer something, and he'd refer to it as relatively plausible. Now, when he, one part of the book, he talked about how we sat for oh, over 300 hours and watched all the Jane Goodall chimpanzee tapes. So this is a guy that's totally fascinated with primates, and he wants so much to have a unified theory of egalitarianism. Do you feel like he he, he might have been reaching in, in, in some of the work? Yes, actually, because you know, he admitted it, right, that he was attempting to build a theory here, but there really wasn't quite enough evidence to build it on. And interestingly, Graeber, in his new book, The Dawn of Everything, David Graeber and David Wengro, which a lot of people are reading and talking about, it is a good book. I just finished reading it, I don't know, a week ago. They actually engage Boehm, which is unusual. I mean, okay. in two different sections of that book, they actually specifically call out Boehm and his theories and hierarchy in the forest and engage it. And in their first engagement, I think they were actually bang on which is that they acknowledge that he was certainly on to something, but because their, you know, their, their core thesis in the book is that human history is a lot more interesting and a lot more variegated than the, the straightforward narrative of forager becomes tribalist, becomes settled agriculturist, becomes state, becomes empire, and that things were much, much more varied than that. And so their principal critique of Boehm was, yes, sort of right sometimes, but... Here's some examples of, you know, brutal top-down dictators in small forager groups. Here's some examples of egalitarianism at much larger scales. Right. And so Boehm was onto something, but overstated his position with respect to its universality. Yeah. And I would say that uh, that's probably a fair assessment. Yeah. And, and, you know, to kind of support his work, let's say that, let's also point out, number one, through cultural anthropology, he has to look at artifacts and make guesses, right? And then through ethnography, he has to extrapolate backward through time. But he was never there, so he, he can't really be sure. He can only be sure of who these people are now. So he, he did the best he could, you know, given those tools. Yeah, interesting methodological question, because, of course, this is a famous problem with cultural anthropology. To what degree can we look at today's forager people or, or forager people that existed within very recent historical times, so they were reasonably well documented, and project that back into, into history? And it's, you know, it's a known problem, but it's all we got. Right. So I want to I read something out of page 123 where he refers to the term game. And I, I watched carefully for this, this word in the book, and it shows up on page 123. And here's what he says. The egalitarian ethos amounts to an, an unusual political, quote-unquote, game that is based on social agreement among the main political actors. The implicit contract reads something like this. There are individually variable human tendencies to outstrip or control one's fellows, comma, which can lead to domination by the strong. We determined to solve the problem as follows. Rather than countenance modes of competition that will permit one of us to dominate the others, we all agree to give up our small chance of becoming ascendant, in order to avoid the very high probability that we will be subordinated. 
We agree to settle merely for individual autonomy for all, comma, rather than seeking ascendancy or domination. And we implement this program to, by defining our firsts among equals. So a meritocracy. You have to pull that one out. That's you know damn close to a almost a preamble for the Game B Constitution, right? It, you know, it's it's worthwhile to look at it. Page one twenty three, where he he refers to it as a game. And you know, we talked about meetings. We talked about ritual. We talked about meetings being games. We talked about Huizinga in his book Homo Ludens, the game the game playing animal. I think that this is what we're doing all the time. And that where politics are concerned, it's about who decides ultimately for the group. And authority and authorization is at the core of that. And in what we've talked about over this, this talk, discussed small group, you know, the, the virtue of a small group, the small group game. How, does, how do we scale it, Jim? That's the real question. Yeah, that's a, and that's a real question. I would say it's the biggest open question in the Game B hypothesis. Can we actually scale non-position-based leadership to the scale of you know building 787s, getting to the moon? Or the one I use as a thought experiment is the long baseline gravity observatory, right? Oh, what's that? You know, several billion dollars. That's the thing that detected the gravity waves. It's like a 30-year massive scientific project on three continents, thousands of people, loosely coupled, but still uh, at least in part driven by you know, position-based leadership. Could humanity find its way through new ways of self-organizing to be able to take on the largest challenges? Because you know, one of the things I, I always have to underline for people Game B is not the theory of hippies living in a mud hut, right? You know, Game B want, still wants humanity to get to the stars, right? So we have to solve huge problems. And we don't yet know how to do it at that kind of scale. But it's our number one challenge to try to figure that out. Coordination problems, Jim. That's what they are. Yeah. Yeah, they're coordination and cooperation problems. And the two are closely related, but they're not quite the same thing. Right. So Bohm talks about generosity being a key trait of any leadership candidate, that and an even temper. Now, this generosity thing actually plays out in the way that leaders lead. So if leaders lead not with domination, not with delegation, but with invitation, a couple of things happen all of a sudden. Number one, when you invite Authority passes from the sender to the receiver. The receiver is now in charge of the, sequence, the next sequence of events, when they respond, how they respond, if they respond at all. Okay, so there's some implicit authority generosity there. If a leader invites someone to come in and do something, the leader is kind of saying, hey, you're pretty good at this. Would you like to lead in this particular domain for a little while? So there's some, there's some real honor associated with leadership invitation as well. And then we talked about passion and responsibility. If the person's not passionate and they're not responsible, they're not going to say yes to that invitation, right? So some people get invited into a role they never wanted any part of. They're like voluntold. Maybe part of the game B ethic is that invitational leadership, leadership invitation is at the core of the leadership ethos. What do you think about that? I like that. Yeah, I like that. At least it's a, it certainly a, it seems like a reasonable building block. Reverse the polarity, right? Right. And it's very similar to the idea of, you know, crowdfunding the movie, right? Which is in some sense, we're inviting you to participate, that nobody is saying, 
we're going to do this. Uh, basically, we say, here's an opportunity. Who wants to become involved, either as a worker, an advisor, or a funder, or all the above? Right. And so this, your idea, which, which you have obviously campaigned in your writings and your books and, and things of invitation-based leadership, actually, is, a, is a, a, especially as we've pursued this examination in this conversation, actually looks like a potentially quite useful building block as we think about what is Game B leadership, cooperation, coordination at scales beyond the Den- Dunbar number. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm reasonably confident that we, that we can figure it out below the gum, Dunbar number. But, you know, so far we have not demonstrated the ability to do it above the Dunbar number. And this may well be one of the important constituents of that. Do you want to go a little further in, in this on this thread? Yeah. If you have other things to say, let's uh, let's get them out. We don't have a lot of time. You know, try to wrap it up in the next five minutes or so. Yeah. But you know, what, what other thoughts do you have along these lines? Yeah. Let me continue with this receiver thing. So let's say that the, the, the leader invites someone, you know, from the, from the group to come in and, and, and uh, take the point position or lead on something. Now we're going to find out if that person is passionate and responsible about the topic. Right. So they're not going to say yes unless they know what's in it for them. Right. So it has to be carefully framed. Jane McGonigal in her book, Reality is Broken, on page 22, did the world a tremendous favor by defining, offering a extremely general and extremely robust definition of a good game. And she said that it had four properties. First, clear goals. What's in it for the person? Secondly, the constraints, boundaries, or guardrails, the things that are not negotiable, like when you show up, when you, when, you, when you leave. And then the third thing was a way to track your progress, how to read feedback and know where you are in the game. Like, you know, people need to experience progress to have a feeling of well-being. So goals, rules, progress tracking, and then the fourth and most important piece, opt-in participation. Now, what's super interesting about this is that we, we, we refer to this game B, the word game is baked in to the term game B. So that's pretty interesting, number one. Um, and number two, the, the, the definition that Jane put out there for a good game actually is the same extra, exact structure of a well-formed invitation. If you invite me into something, but you can't name the goals, you can't name the constraints, you can't name how I'm going to experience progress. I cannot give you an unambiguous yes or no. But if you define the goals, the rules, the feedback mechanisms, and you're offering me a job, I can give you an, a totally unambiguous yes or no if you can define those things for me. So th- this is some of the pieces of the invitational leadership style. It goes back to McGonagall's definition of game, and also that definition applies to well-formed invitations. So the last thing I'll say about this is that well-formed invitations require much more design thinking, much more rigor, and much more discipline than mere delegations. Because they, I like you know, it. if you want people in, you better darn well explain what's in it for them and, and structure it, right? So that's my rant on that. On that piece. Very useful. And I know we've talked about this before, but this actually has made it more clear somehow having these two parallax views on it of Che and Boehm. Well, Daniel, we are at the 90 minute mark and 
Me being an old fart, I notice my mental acuity starts to fuzz out a little bit around 90 minutes. Sometimes I can carry on a little further, but not much. So I think it's best that we wrap it up here. This has been a fascinating conversation as always, and I look forward to doing one in the future. Beautiful, Jim. I just want to say one thing in closing about you. You got to wake up pretty early in the morning to pull a fast one on Jim Rutt. Pretty early in the morning. So with that, with that, I'll, I'll leave you, okay? All right. I, I, I won't disagree with that one. <laughs> Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.